You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Today is October 30th, 2015. It's the end of the month, and it's time for another Questions for Corbett, the ongoing monthly podcast series where you send in questions and I try to supply some answers. And let's go about doing that. But before we do, as always, I'd just like to remind you that there are many different ways for you to get your questions in for consideration in the next month's edition of QFC. One of which is simply to go to my website, CorbettReport.com, and click on the contact button at the, on the menu bar at the top, and you will have two different ways of getting in touch with me there. You can either type in your message, or you can record a message through your, your computer's microphone via the SpeakPipe application. Either way, I would be happy to consider those for next month's QFC. Or you can tweet me at CorbettReport with the hashtag QFC. You can record a video of yourself on your webcam or what have you and uh, put that up on a video sharing platform and let me know that it's there and I'll be happy to use that video in the next QFC. Or you can, of course, if you are a Corbett Report member, log into the website and leave your question in the comment section of the previous QFC. And speaking of which, with regards to last month's edition of this Questions for Corbett series, I had a couple of questions for you which I received answers to in spades. I received... A lot of feedback on my request for help regarding uh, possible things that I could be gardening this late in the year. A lot of different responses, not only in the comment section of the last uh, QFC episode, but lots of emails, uh, voicemails, I mean, all sorts of things from people. So thank you very much for that outpouring of support. Uh, it's good to know that there are a lot of green thumbs out there in the crowd that can help me out as I fumble my way through my black thumb uh, uh, learning curve, as it were. Uh, also, I put out the question from one of the listeners last month about uh, alternative health news and info sites that people can be looking at. There's tons of response to that, lots of people with their ideas and I would suggest you go and read through that comment section from QFC number 25 so that you can see the, some of those ideas for yourself. Lots of links to lots of different websites and uh, other things that people can be checking into. But let's get straight into this month's edition of the series by, well, starting by answering some, some of the comments from last month's QFC. Uh, so let's turn to Joe, who wrote in the comment section, Have you heard anything about the Pope being a CIA plant? He seems to be getting more attention and affection than any of the other popes that have come before him. When was the last time that a sitting president of the U.S. went down to the airport to meet someone on the tarmac? All right, thank you for the question. CIA? I don't know if I've heard that specifically, as in the C he is CIA or the CIA personally selected him for the position, although... Clearly, the allegation has been made that he does cooperate with and is in line with Washington and uh, the Washington uh, line on many things, including, of course, his participation in the Latin American Dirty Wars in the 1970s under Operation Condor. For more on that specifically, I'll throw a couple of links in the show notes, one to a uh, article that was written by Michelle Chosodovsky shortly after uh, Pope Francis became Pope Francis, uh, Washington's Pope, who is Pope Francis, and I also did an interview with him for GR GRTV on, on that very note, uh, Bitter Past, 
Pope Francis and Argentina's Dirty War, which I think would be worth checking out in that regard. As to the other part of your question, how many, you know, how unusual is it for a president to meet someone at the airport? It is fairly unusual, but interestingly enough, this coming from People.com of all places, President Obama to Pope Francis, I'll pick you up at the airport. And in that article, it notes, while it's rare for President Obama to meet a foreign dignitary's plane, the greeting of the Pope at the airport is not unheard of. In 2008, former President George W. Bush and First Lady Laura Bush met Pope Benedict at the same Maryland military base. So make of that what you will. I'm sure the uh, the Catholics secretly run the world crowd will make a lot of that. And uh, But I thought that they believe that it doesn't matter about the Pope so much as the Black Pope, anyway, the, the head of the Jesuits. I don't know. Anyway, so yes, certainly there has been a lot of that uh, floating around for a long time. And and, of course, we've seen with the unfolding of uh, the Pope's uh, pronouncements on climate change, because when I'm looking for climate change pronouncements, I go to the Pope. Uh, We're we certainly falling in line with a lot of the globalist uh, ideas and principles. So, again, make of that what you will. But I think there's the uh, a lot of people have made the suggestion that he is some sort of NWO ringer. And it certainly seems that way from where I'm sitting. Uh, let's move on to another question from the comment section from Kabuit, Kabout, Kabout, Kabout. Although I tend to agree with the concept of decentralization of power and voluntarism, I have to wonder at which point will individual physical strength become the defining point in authority? Are we, as a species, ready to be ruled by individual morality? It seems to me that the less physically strong individuals, including women, do benefit from having certain rules enforced by a community, even if the so-called enforcement is merely being shunned. Thank you for the question. I think that this question is, in fact, from what I understand what you're saying here, I don't think what you're saying is actually incompatible with voluntarist society. In fact, I think you are describing a voluntarist society i.e. a society where there are rules that are enforced and uh, that that may include the process of shunning of individuals. Uh, that's all perfectly in line with a voluntarist society, which, of course, let's remember, is based on the core ethical principle of the non-aggression principle. So, once again, for people who haven't got, quite got the message yet, anarchy doesn't mean no rules, it means no rulers. And I know that's a difficult concept for people to follow, but it really isn't when we break it down to brass tacks, tacks like the fact that if you violate the non-aggression principle, i.e. if you initiate force, fraud, or coercion against a peaceful individual, then that individual has right to redress of that grievance. And that right can either be addressed directly by that person, if they are you know, physically or you know, in other ways strong enough to, to do that themselves, or you know, well-placed to do that themselves, then of course they are able to do that in the same way you can defend yourself against someone who's attacking you. I mean, self-defense or whatever would exist in a voluntary society. Or that if that person is not physically or uh, otherwise able themselves to redress that grievance themselves, then they can defer that that uh, that right to redress to other individuals that they so name or groups that they so name. It's not, again, it's not that there would not be law enforcement agencies in a voluntary society. It's only the fact that there would not be one monolithic, monopolistic law enforcement agency that claims the right to rule over you whether you like it or not. It, there would be competition. There would be different groups competing for uh, people's interest in the law enforcement field. So, again, I don't think anything of what you said is actually incompatible with voluntarist society. But it does speak to, I think, one very important point uh, where you ask, are we as a species ready to be ruled by 
individual morality, I think that's a strange term, I, uh, by the non-aggression principle and voluntarist principles. And I would say, well, no, I don't think we are ready for it as a species. And uh, this goes to a point that's made later in that same QFC comment section by Bub Romer. Suppose for a moment that official America, the masters of the world, the elite and the mindless drones who prop them up by blindly following their orders were to disappear overnight. What would happen then? In my mind, there would be a power vacuum scenario which would lead to turmoil and the rising of new powers, just as cynical as those they replace, just because human beings arguably have a distaste for what they perceive to be a void in hierarchy. This brings me to my question. Are we as a species fundamentally at need of power moguls, overt or covert, out of, condition, out of millennia of conditioning, or even intrinsically? Are we not evolved enough yet to deal with a void in hierarchy or any kind of void, which would place the onus on us as, one hopes, morally-minded human beings using the agency of free will within the confines of natural law? Well, yes, uh, thank you for the question. Thank you for articulating that, Bob Romer. And, uh, well, to answer your question quite simply, yes, I don't think we are quite evolved to that, that stage yet. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving for that. It doesn't mean necessarily that we'll ever reach that point. But I think the closer we get to that point and the more we decentralize the power and the more we're able to, to cope with that as a society, the better off we'll be. But to answer the, the question more broadly, uh, I think you are exactly correct that if the capstone of the pyramid were to be assassinated overnight by a bunch of ninja assassins, as some members of the alt-media are constantly postulating is about to happen any minute now... <laughs> Uh, if that were to happen, it would change precisely nothing about the status quo itself, other than the face of the powers that shouldn't be. Uh, it would change nothing, because every rung on that power ladder would simply move up a rung. And so the, the, power uh, the, the, the rung right underneath the capstone of the pyramid would love that. They could just move into the capstone and become the rulers uh, that shouldn't be. So... Uh, yes, it would change nothing, because, of course, there's lots of power-hungry psychopaths that are just aching to get their way uh, further up the ladder, and they would simply slot into that place. It would change nothing fundamentally about society, mm. which, of course, raises the question, then what could fundamentally change this system? And that's something that I've been answering time and time again over the years. I'm I'm proud to say that I've been quite consistent on this point, um, and I've articulated differently at different times, but I think it's the same idea. You can go back to one of my very, very, very early interviews back from 2009. I gave an interview entitled uh, James Corbett, The Revolution of the Mind is the Only Revolution that Matters. I'll link in the show notes where, yes, I say it's, it's going to take a, a, a revolution in consciousness more so than a revolution with uh, pickaxes and, and pitchforks uh, to actually change anything fundamental. Or you could go right all the way up to the present day, where my latest podcast episode, 309 on Solutions Agorism, talks about... I, I like the, uh, the, the analogy that I came up with there by saying that rather than begging for scraps from the master's table and begging for more scraps, please, please, can we have some more gruel? The point is to create another table where we have our own party. And the, it may start out small and, uh, and humble, but the more that it grows and the more people participate in, in that table, the more the party will start to shift over to us so that we don't have to beg for scraps or even care what the master is doing. And obviously, as I said in that episode, at the at a certain point, when the master's table starts being deserted and people start coming over to our side, the master will get angry and will lash out with violence. Of course, let's not be naive about that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving for that goal, uh, which just means that we have to be ready for that violence when it comes. So 
So again, I think that's that's one way of looking at it. We have to create the alternative. And again, that's something that I've been very consistent about for years. And one of my favorite, one of my other favorite articulations of that idea is uh, something that I articulated in an interview with Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com uh, back in 2013 in uh, an interview that was entitled Anatomy of the New World Order. Well, I'm intrigued by the the idea that we've been given false templates to follow in terms of solving our problems or of fighting enemies. And I think part of this false template that we've been provided through so much social conditioning and, and the media that we consume, etc., is this idea that we must find the heart of the organization. We must find the head of this organization. We must somehow kill that person or that group or whatever it is, eliminate that, and everything will magically turn to the better. And I think that that is a false template that we've been given. And, and one only has to think in broad terms that pretty much every science fiction dystopia, because they have managed to decapitate the head of the beast in, in whatever way it is, um, whether it be the Lord of the Rings or Tron or any, any of these types of movies or, or things that you can think of. The idea is you kill the, the head bad guy and everything turns magically into a peaceful utopia. And I think that that is fundamentally completely the wrong way to look at it because I don't think that at the end of the day that the particular individuals who may or may not be the ones holding the ultimate ring of power at this particular moment are irreplaceable. On the contrary, there are many, many people who would be so chomping at the bit to get into that position of power should that old guard be swept away for whatever reason. And I think it has to be something that is a more fundamental revolution, not of overthrowing a specific instantiation of this idea, but overthrowing the idea altogether. And that can only come, I think, from the building up of an alternative system to which people want to actually apply themselves, rather than attempting to simply have some wage some sort of heroic war that will solve everything once and for all. I think we have to actually just detach ourselves from this system that we've been woven into. And unfortunately, that's probably as difficult to do as that analogy would make it sound, because we are so woven into a fabric of society that it is difficult to imagine really extrapolating ourselves from all of these processes that rely for so many of our daily needs on these vast, overwhelming corporate infrastructures that tie into these various organizations that themselves pull the strings of various governmental institutions. It's such a vast and un unwieldy system that it can seem quite overwhelming at times. How can a single individual affect this? But I think that we have to look for any and every possible point at which we can at least start to detach ourselves from those systems of controls, to start to try to reassert some sort of independence. And that can be an extremely small thing, like, for example, instead of I don't know, going out and buying your, your groceries at the grocery store, perhaps you can go and buy them at a farmer's market or at least some of your groceries you can get at a farmer's market or you can grow it yourself in a, in a vegetable garden or something of that sort is a tiny thing on the individual level. But I think it is the only thing that in the long run can lead to the type of society that we want to bring to fruition. I think, again, it's the small things like that to which if we start to apply ourselves with diligence and with perseverance, 
that in the long run will be able to overthrow this. But unfortunately, as I say, we are on this cusp of this scientific revolution, which makes a scientific dictatorship possible. So unfortunately, we don't have necessarily generations of time in which to do this. So that puts a bit of a time perspective on this, a, a ticking, I don't want to say time bomb, but you get the idea, a certain time limit to the accomplishment of this, which means that we don't have a lot of time to waste in deciding which of these structures we want to give ourselves over to. Either we continue going into this technological structure that is part of this corporate matrix, which involves even such things as buying the next generation of iPhone, which they're already saying is going to have its uh, own fingerprint scanning technology, and, and all of this corporate technological, industrial, defense, military, big brother, spy grid matrix to which we're signing on every single day of our lives willingly and, and knowingly and actually paying our money to buy into – or we start creating alternative structures which don't rely on that system. And it's a choice that we have to make in our lives, I would say, more quickly than has been apparent at any other time in human history. All right, we'll leave it there, of course, with the exhortation for you to go and listen to that entire interview, because I think it is quite apt to this question and quite generally to how how the, we can uh, think of the New World Order, how we can conceptualize that in a way that's meaningful for answering the question of what we can do about it. Um, again, I think it was a detailed and insightful interview. And of course, at least half of the credit for that has to go to the interviewer, Julian Charles, who I think is a great interviewer. So if you haven't checked out The Mind Renewed, please do so. Uh, but let's move on to the next question again in the comment section from QFC number 25. Uh, from Maurice Burke 88, a uh, short, quick question on central banking. Are you aware if Anonymous or any other hacker group have targeted the Federal Reserve, ECB, or probably, preferably, the BIS and leaked files? Or is it just fantasy that we would find some silver bullet file that names names and we can show uh, to everyone not in the know that the system is rigged? Uh, well, uh, in terms of has it ever been, have these entities ever been hacked or any files released? No, as far as I know, the Alphabet Soup agency that calls themselves uh, anonymous have not deemed fit to release any of the files of any of the central banks, of course, the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, the BOE, uh, or the Bank for International Settlements, the Capstone. Uh, which also, I mean, brings up the other part of your question, would it even be effective? I mean, is it just fantasy to imagine there's a smoking gun document that we could find that would, you know, suddenly reveal everything to the public? I think that is fantasy, because I don't know what kind of document that could possibly be. I mean, certainly it wouldn't be some cartoonish document, you know, from Lord Jacob Rothschild, dear Bank of England, I own you, ha ha ha, I mean, written in blood or something on a piece of parchment. I, I mean, Clearly, that's not going to exist. And anything that would even hint at that type of power structure or control behind the scenes would be too dense, too jargon-laden, too complicated for people to understand. Um, and I don't think most people would even try. I mean, do you remember back in 2011 when Bloomberg successfully sued the Federal Reserve to get those documents that they had FOIA'd about where the bailout money went and what banks took out what money at what times, and they managed to get all of that data and they released it completely open to public researchers. Come on, go 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 at it. Sink your teeth into it. You can look at exactly what banks board what for what time frame under what uh, rules. Does anyone even remember that information, let alone care? I mean, no one really cared. It's just like, oh, okay, there was a secret bailout program, and here's all the data, and eh, okay, all right. Well, that's a lot of work. I don't know what it means. So I think that's really uh, the best we could ever hope for, is that they'd release information that would then probably be largely ignored. Because at the end of the day, 
no one really cares about banking or the way that the banks operate or how much of a boondoggle it is or you know how much power the banks are wielding over the rest of society as long as they can take money out of the ATM and buy their cheeseburgers and beer. I mean, for the almost everybody in the public, almost unanimously, that's the, uh, the, the angle they're coming from. If that ever happened, they went to the ATM and the money didn't come out, then there would be a possibility of revolution. Like... Like what we see in Greece when, you know, the banking system is on the, the, the verge of total collapse. Yeah, people get angry and, and things happen. But until and unless and until that happens, I don't, just don't think people are going to get excited about that type of uh, document release. I'd like to be proven otherwise. I'd like to be proven wrong on that. Uh, sp- sticking with the banking theme, uh, let's open up the mailbag and go to an email that I received from Scott who asks... Do you know how banking functioned between 1836 through 1913, the time period between central banks in the United States? Do you know how they were able to end the charter of the Second Bank of the United States, and whether such precedent could possibly be repeated? Do you know of any other functional banking systems in history not controlled by a central bank? Excellent questions. Very, very good questions. Thank you for this, Scott. And unfortunately, very good questions that are so far beyond the scope of what I'd be able to answer in a few pithy sentences here in a few minutes that I can only gesture towards the answer of these questions rather than answer them in depth. But yes, it's very good that you highlighted and and honed in on that era. So we know the Second Bank of the United States, the former central bank, uh, was no more after 1836 and its charter expired. And before the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, that's a big chunk of time. What what happened? What was going on there? How did the banking system function? There was no central bank. Uh, basically, very, 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 very long story short, there were two different eras there. There was 1836 to 1863 that was known as the free banking era. Free as in free speech, not as in free pizza. Uh, although that is a complete misnomer because although free banking makes it sound like there was no regulations and it was all willy-nilly, there were in fact regulations in place. And it was those precise regulations that are to blame for the crises and, and the frequent uh, panics that were happening in that era, which has been demonstrated time and again in recent years as people revisit that era of banking history. And then there was 1863 to 1913, the National Banks era, um, based on the National Banking Act of 1863, that was the banksters' response to the creation of the Greenback in 1862, when Lincoln started uh, issuing the Greenbacks to, to help fund the war effort. And, hey, we we don't need to you know pay banks interest in order to get money. We just make money. And, uh, and the banksters didn't like that. So 1863, the National Banking Act was passed, and that was the way of solidifying a national banking system that included the creation, really, of a national currency, um, where all the banks in the national banking system had to accept each other's notes at face value by by default it created a national currency uh, again so much to say about that era of banking and something we'll have to explore probably in depth in multiple different podcasts and interviews and things over over time but uh, very important that you start looking into that and to answer the other part of that question do you know of any functional banking systems in history not controlled by a central bank I will refer you over to a, uh, a PDF file of a book uh, edited by Kevin Dowd called The Experience of Free Banking. Um, again, you can go and read this for yourself, but I will direct your attention specifically, if you want the uh, the very short form, to figure 2.1, which lists, I believe, 61 different uh, uh, banking systems in history that have experimented with some form of free banking. 
some of which had some regulations in place, some had stricter, some lesser regulations, and a few had no regulations at all in place, uh, let alone no central bank. So yes, it has been tried throughout history to varying degrees of success in different places, and uh, you can find out more about that in the experience of free banking, again linked up in the show notes. And finally, the other part of your question, uh, how did the Second Bank of the United States end? Uh, How were they able to end the charter? Um, Could that possibly be repeated? Good questions and questions that I did tackle in my uh, documentary, Century of Enslavement, uh, the History of the Federal Reserve. Less than a year later, the U.S. is once again at war with England. After two years of bitter struggle, the public debt of the U.S. has nearly tripled from $45.2 million to $119.2 million. With trade at a standstill, prices soaring, inflation rising, and debt mounting, President Madison signs the charter for the creation of another central bank, the Second Bank of the United States, in 1816. Just like the two central banks before it, it is majority privately owned and is granted the power to loan money that it creates out of thin air to the government. The 20-year bank charter is due to expire in 1836, but still in his first term, President Andrew Jackson has already vowed to let it die prior to renewal. Believing that Jackson won't risk his chance for re-election in 1832 on the issue, the bankers forward a bill to renew the bank's charter in July of that year, four years ahead of schedule. Remarkably, Jackson vetoes the renewal charter and stakes his re-election on the people's support of his move. In his veto message, Jackson writes in no uncertain terms, about his opposition to the bank. Whatever interest or influence, whether public or private, has given birth to this act, it cannot be found either in the wishes or necessities of the executive department, by which present action is deemed premature, and the powers confirmed upon its agent not only unnecessary, but dangerous to the government and country. It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. If we cannot at once... Injustice to interests vested under improvident legislation make our government what it ought to be, we can at least take a stand against all new grants of monopolies and exclusive privileges, against any prostitution of our government to the advancement of the few at the expense of the many, and in favor of compromise and gradual reform in our code of laws and system of political economy. The people side with Jackson, and he's re-elected on the back of his slogan, Jackson and no bank. The president makes good on his pledge. In 1833, he announces that the government will stop using the bank and will pay off its debt. The bankers retaliate in 1834 by staging a financial crisis and attempting to pin the blame on Jackson, but it's no use. On January 8, 1835, President Jackson succeeds in paying off the debt, and for the first and only time in its history, the United States is free from the debt chain of the bankers. In 1836, the second bank of the United States charter expires, and the bank loses its status as America's central bank. That is Century of Enslavement, available for free viewing in its entirety on YouTube. The transcript and other resources, the hyperlinked transcript, is available on corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve. And of course, if you do appreciate the documentary, please do buy a physical DVD copy and help support the filmmaker. Uh, That's $20 in the uh, DVD uh, section of corporatereport.com. All right. Uh, okay. So again, uh, that's only a, a, a gesture toward the answer of your questions, but thank you for asking those questions, Scott. Let's move on to another comment in the Corbett Report comment section from the last QFC. 
In regard to TTP threatening the liberties of internet, is there any alternative available that could serve as an independent source of exchanging information? Uh, this was echoed by an email that I received uh, recently from Mal. If the powers that be censor or filter the internet, do you think there will be a way to get around it? Uh, well, okay, rather than reinventing the wheel, wheel here, I will just redirect you to a previous edition of the Corporate Report podcast, episode 262, Solutions, Pirate Internet, which talks about uh, wireless mesh networking. Uh, it's a solution, or a workaround at the very least, to the current uh, increasingly censored and controlled and filtered internet. Uh, it is not a silver bullet solution, and it's not going to be unstoppable by the powers that shouldn't be, but I think we have to look for and press on those points of uh, work around when and if and how and while we can. And I think there will always be those those points of work around for people who are motivated to do so. And the more of us who engage in that type of activity, again, we're creating the alternative table, as it were, at the party and uh, taking scraps, uh, not taking scraps from the master's table, but creating our own table. So Solutions Pirate Internet is where you could start with an answer to that question. Thank you very much. Let's move on to another email that came in from Alphalitz. Just wanted to ask what email box or mail service you use for your emails. Uh, don't really feel that secure when using Yahoo or Google. Thank you for the question. No, you shouldn't feel that good when uh, using Yahoo or Google because they are admittedly uh, scanning your emails. Of course, only for keywords for advertising purposes, right? Oh, yeah, and if law enforcement ever asks for any information, they're happy to give it. But anyway, uh, yes, no, clearly webmail, uh, especially by the big ones, Yahoo or Google, are not going to be secure in any sense. Uh, uh, personally, I use my own email server, uh, so if that is not an option for you, then... I have talked about Startmail in the past. I did interview Catherine Albrecht. I will link to that interview once again for people who haven't heard about heard it or heard about Startmail or what it does. Uh, I've heard from a few listeners who have tried it out, and I've heard generally good things about it, I think. Um, any more feedback would be appreciated. Or any other ideas. If anyone else has any other ideas, please do leave them in the comments section. All right, let's move on to another tech-related question. Uh, we have this question coming in uh, via audio from Greg. There was a Radiolab podcast called Dark Code with a K that I was listening to recently and I thought of you. It detailed a crypto malware attack on a lady where a virus gets into your computer, encrypts all your files, then requests that you pay a certain amount of money to get them unencrypted. And they used Bitcoin as their currency of choice because of the freedom-friendly features being anonymous and untrackable also make it great for crime. And I'm wondering in an ideal anarcho-capitalist society, how we would deal with mechanisms uh, for maybe, example, Bitcoin uh, that are used primarily for, for crime. The, um, the proprietor of a cafe where this lady had to go to buy bitcoins lamented that most people that were coming in were victims of this crypto malware and uh, that, that was their first experience with, with bitcoin leading me to believe that possibly bitcoin is being used largely for this sort of thing what do we do about that in a non-centrally controlled society how do we stop mechanisms that are um, enabling outcomes that we agree aren't favorable. How do we do that without forming large organizations and governments? Thanks for all the work and for the response. Thank you very much for the question, Greg. It's funny that you bring that up, actually, because I've only just recently subscribed to the Radiolab podcast because it was recommended by a few different listeners, a few different episodes of that podcast. And 
Although I detest, detest their gee whiz style of reporting and their over editing and their trying to make everything, you know, bouncy and bubbly and make it sound like they're discovering a story as they tell it to you and all that kind of trickery and nonsense and, and, and silliness. I really detest that style, even more so than just lowbrow, it is what it is, appealing to lowest common denominator. This is somehow even more annoying than that. But having said that, they do occasionally deal with topics that are worth exploring, either as a propaganda narrative or vector that people should know about, or sometimes genuinely interesting topics. So on that note, yes, I did hear this Dark Code episode of Radio Lab, which I'll include in the podca- in the show notes for this podcast so that you can go and listen to it for yourself. But yes, the upshot of it is that this story is about these hackers that would ha- that are hacking or have hacked into people's systems. They encrypt the, the person's computer and all their files, and then they send the person a message saying, if you pay us such and such a ransom by such and such a date, we'll unlock the files for you. And if you don't, we'll delete them all. And this is, they told it from the perspective of the story of one of the elderly, non-tech-savvy women who had been subject to this, and she decided to pay the ransom because she really needed these files. And the whole whole thing was, the whole catch was, the ransom had to be paid in, of course, Bitcoin. So it was all about how this huge rigmarole had to be, she had to go through in order to find out what Bitcoin was and then figure out how to buy them and then send them and all of this. So the underlying message of the entire episode is, of course, Bitcoin ransom, Bitcoin illegal, Bitcoin crime, Bitcoin fear. I mean, it's cartoonish. It's the kind of cartoonish propaganda we would expect anytime anything smacking of agorism in the counter economy is brought up in any sort of mainstream context. Illegal drugs, crime, ransom hate, violence, you know, anything of that sort. And that exists. I mean, let's not county code it. Of course that exists. But other things exist beside that, and you don't see that being highlighted so much in the mainstream for some reason. But anyway, uh, to address your question itself, if the question is how can we possibly address things like Bitcoin ransom without the idea of a state-enforced monopoly of violence, uh, otherwise known as government, Uh, Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that we should note about that. Uh, Perhaps number one being that there is the state enforced monopoly called the government, uh, state enforced monopoly of violence that we call government, and ransom still goes on. So (laughs) whatever the creation of this amazing, you know, unbelievable, powerful institution that claims to have authority over everyone uh, is whatever benefits that supposedly brings, it certainly doesn't stop the ransom from taking place as it is right now. So I think that's one thing to observe. The other thing to observe is, yeah, there are a lot of different ideas. I don't think it would ever come down to just one idea of how we would deal with problems like that in society. And it would vary from person to person, place to place, situation to situation. Um, and But let's take a look at a particularly interesting and uh, kind of humorous example of how this can be dealt with. And we'll turn to Coindesk.com from an article from May 2014, How Roger Veer Got Hacked and What He Did to Stop It. And attentive listeners might remember that I interviewed Roger Veer on the program um, about, about a year and a half or two years ago, slightly before I think this hacking took place. Uh, he also is briefly in the Century of Enslavement documentary. And the long story short is that Roger Veer got hacked into by, by way of an old disused Hotmail address that he hadn't used in years, but the hackers uh, found their way to it and managed to answer his security questions, which were created before he became a public figure. So they were able to answer those security questions from publicly available information, got control of his account, started getting control of other accounts through that account and changed uh, passwords and things to lock him out. And so he was getting hacked. And in real time, as he was being hacked, he had an interesting idea. Uh, <laughs> 
let's see. Rallying the troops. Uh, okay, so just after 6 p.m., Veer decided to employ the tactic used by Mel Gibson's character in the movie Ransom. Rather than give the bitcoins to the hacker, he posted on Facebook and Twitter that he would use the same amount, the amount that they were asking for, 37.6 bitcoin, which at the time was equivalent to $20,000. Uh, he would use that, that same amount as a bounty on the hacker instead and mentioned the Skype name Nitrous. Uh, the, the actual tweet, 37.6 BTC reward for information that leads to the arrest of the hacker that is trying to hack all my stuff at the moment. Details to come. Uh, that was uh, retweet, retweeted a lot, sent some uh, sent the message out to thousands and tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of followers. And wouldn't you know it, within an hour or so, uh, within half an hour actually, of, of the incident beginning and that tweet being sent out, Suddenly, the hacker sees the tweet and realizes what's about to come down on his head and basically turns tail, turn tail and run, uh, basically soils his undergarments, as it were, and says to Roger, oh, it, it wasn't me. I'm doing this for someone else and they made me do it. And oh, you know, what was me? Uh, please don't sick the hordes on me. And uh, he basically turned over the, the account to Roger again. So that is one, I mean, that's certainly not the only way. It's certainly not even the necessarily the best way, but that's just one example of a way that we could possibly think of to solve these types of problems without resorting to a state enforced monopoly of violence. Um, and I think there are many, many other examples. And uh, I mean, we could even talk about uh, things like restorative justice and, and things like that, that I mentioned in uh, an editorial I wrote for the International Forecaster earlier this year, Anarchy in Action, Spontaneous Order, and the concept of what justice even is and why can't that be determined by the person who was actually wronged? Why don't they get a say in what they actually want to have happen? And, and uh, I mean, there's so much to, to say on that regard. But yes, I think we can deal with things like Bitcoin ransom without forming governments to deal with them. That's, uh, I mean, that's just completely the wrong approach from my perspective. Uh, let's turn to an email from Adam who writes, as a vegan, the concept of voluntarism follows on neatly into the theories, theory of speciesism. I know you're not vegan. Vegetarian isn't relevant for all intents and purposes. It's the same as eating meat. I wondered why not, as you are obviously compassionate and what your stance on the subject actually is. Uh, thank you for that question, Adam. That's a very interesting question, and uh, it's certainly not one that I get asked a lot. Uh, well, let me deal with it as as directly as I can. I, I would say yes, I am a speciesist, and I don't say that with any relish or glee. Or uh, it's not that I'm proud of that fact, but I am a speciesist. And if we were to reduce it to the the age-old hypothetical scenario in the burning building, I can choose to save a child or ch save a dog. I will save the child every single time, and I will not lose a second of sleep at night over that decision. Uh, obviously, I don't want to see the dog die, but it, it, I would I couldn't live with myself if I let the child die instead because I saved the dog. It just, it does not compute to me, and uh, does not, I, I truly don't understand how uh, human beings can be wired to think otherwise than that. I understand some people are, um, and but that's not the way I'm wired at any rate. Uh, but I don't dismiss the question that you're asking or the, the thing that you're gesturing toward. And I certainly, I mean, there's so much back and forth and, and, and vitriol that goes on in these types of online discussions of things like veganism and and, uh, you know, oh, humans are physiologically designed to eat meat, but yeah, but we don't have to eat meat and all of that kind of thing. Let's, let's put it down to this. I certainly don't 
relish the idea of animal suffering or cruelty or needless torture or anything of that sort. And I do know that that takes place in the industrial food chain system that we have in the industrial slaughterhouses and uh, the the horrific condition that animals are subjected to, um, which, again, I don't take any any relish or glee in. So there there is that aspect to it. But to me, to my mind, the unease that we feel with that industrial farming and industrial slaughter and all of that that takes place, the unease that we feel with it is precisely the disconnection that we've had to the process and the way that it's been sanitized so we just walk into a supermarket and pick up some meat. That's so far removed from what is the 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 sort of natural human uh, experience of hunting and gathering, what you know, humans did for however many untold millennia uh, before recorded history, the way that we functioned as hunters and gatherers was that direct connection with the food chain, which has been obviously wrenched out of our lives in the modern system. And because of that, I think we have a lot of the abuses that go on that get covered up and hushed and behind the scenes, which is when we're confronted with that, of course, it's sickening and disgusting. And and there's, I think, genuinely placed moral outrage at at that. Uh, I think the answer to that, again, like so many other answers, is to localize and decentralize. And of course, if people want to be vegan, awesome, great, wonderful. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And in fact, uh, you know, if if I could, I probably would, but I can't. I eat meat and I, I uh, that's just the way I am. But I, I would say that if we could once again have a connection with that food chain and be, if not directly involved, I don't think everyone would be a you know a hunter or a butcher or what have you, but to at least have that experience of being involved in some way in the, in the witness or the participation or being shaking hands and, and being uh, customers of the people who are actually slaughtering the animals directly, to have that kind of direct experience of it would change our perception of the entire issue, I think, and what it means. I mean... It, Let's bring it back to the dances with wolves and, uh, you know, eating the still beating heart from the animal with our fellow hunters after the uh, slaughter provides a completely different experience of what that slaughter is and what it means. Uh, some very interesting philosophical issues here, and I think I've only touched on them here. But but yes, I mean, when we boil it down, ultimately, I am a speciesist and I do care about human suffering more than animal suffering. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying I'm right about it. I'm certainly open to debate on this subject and I'd like to hear from other people's perspectives, but that's, that is the way I am wired. All right. Um, again, probably a lot more to say on that, but let's move on to the next question. Uh, this time an audio question in from Lee. Hello, James. I watched your recent Boiling Frogs post video regarding paedophilia and at the very end, Sibel brought up the point about public apathy. And whilst I completely understand her frustration at it, I also understand that we are being polluted daily from all kinds of different angles, you know, the aspartame, fluoride, the GMOs, the vaccines, all of the toxins that are added and you know, known or unknown to our food. So the question I ask is, to what extent do you think that the apathy is pure apathy? And to what extent do you think that the apathy is affected or fostered or created by the poisons that we are exposed to daily? Thank you very much. That's an interesting question, Lee. Thank you for posing it. And for people who have just stumbled on this video by accident, thinking uh, this was Colbert or something of that sort... Yes, this sounds like crazy science fiction fantasy, but it really isn't. Uh, and there are a lot of different things that we've gestured to 
in the past in regards to the actual science and technology that has been experimented with and played around with with regards to potential for well, mind control of some sort or another uh, via outside environmental influences. Dr. Persinger's tests suggest that carefully programmed electromagnetic frequencies can tap into individual brains and influence people's emotions. The cognitive processes of the human brain are really quite simple. And if you understand how they work, you can make entire populations think and decide uh, the manner in which you wish. Harvard researchers have found children who live in high fluoride areas have significantly lower IQs than those who live in low fluoride areas. Fluoride is added to drinking water, baby formula, and toothpaste to prevent tooth decay. Further, the EPA says fluoride is a chemical with substantial evidence of developmentally neurotoxicity, meaning it interferes with functions of the brain. Some doctors even say the positive effects it has on tooth decay isn't really worth what it's doing to our children's brains. Lithium is a medication that in prescription doses treats mood disorders in people with bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness. And what these researchers found in Japan is that it's, uh, lithium is present in trace amounts in the normal water supply in some communities. And in those communities, they have a lower suicide rate. And so they're really investigating whether trace amounts of lithium can just change the mood in a community enough to really, in a, in a positive way, without having the bad effects of lithium, to really affect the mood and decrease the suicide rate. Now, unfortunately, I think you can appreciate that there's no way that I can possibly provide any kind of definitive answer to that question. I don't have the secret smoking gun documents proving exactly what is being done in what measure by what people to what degree and to what extent that's having an effect on what people in what situations. It's so much speculation combined with, uh, I'm sure, a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there on the interwebs that I'll let you sort through that tangled mess yourself, but it's an intriguing other aspect to this question, this problem of public apathy, that of course we did raise recently in our roundtable on the Hastert scandal, the subject of pedophilia in politics, and why so few people seem to care about this uh, this issue or take it seriously. And that was something that we debated, uh, or at least began to debate in that roundtable before, and generated a lot of very interesting commentary. So I do appreciate the people who were participating in the comment section there on, on YouTube, in my own website comment section, uh, the emails that I received on the subject, the comments over on BoilingFrogsPost.com. I think there's been a lot of thoughtful responses to that. And on that note, let's, uh, let's listen to one of those responses, uh, an email that I got in from Jeff. Uh, what does Sibel want the people to do, James? Write our congressman expressing our outrage? March on Washington demanding the rats resign? Carry signs exposing the evildoers? I'd really like to know what we the people could do that would genuinely make a difference. I feel helpless, and it's maddening because I want to do something constructive and effective. My hope is the economy will crater and the Fed will be exposed as incapable of putting Humpty Dumpty back together. That's the only way I see out, an economic collapse of biblical proportions that will starve Leviathan to death. Okay, thank you for that, Jeff. And that, I think, is the, the attitude of a lot of people who wrote in we're not apathetic about this situation. It's just, what do we do? If you're going to say we're apathetic, then you should provide something that we could actually be doing. And I think that's a, a very good question to be asking. And that is something that we're going to go into in much greater detail in our next roundtable, which I hope is taking place next week. 
Uh, it still hasn't been finalized, but I believe we're taking uh, doing that next week, where we'll, we'll be talking about this in greater depth. And Sibel has gestured toward what she is thinking along uh, in the comment section of BoilingFrogsPost.com about what she specifically wants to start constructing. And I'll include a link to that comment on the Boiling Frogs Post uh, uh, website so that you can go and read through what she's uh, so far said about that. But, uh, I mean, there's a lot of good questions in here. I mean, first of all, I mean, writing your congressman or whatever, I mean, clearly, I would assume for the majority of the corporate report listeners is the uh, is more of a joke than it is a serious proposal. So what is something that we can actually do? Uh, uh, my hope is the economy will crater and the Fed will be exposed as incapable of putting Humpty Dumpty back together. Yes, I mean, certainly an economic collapse would change the status quo, but by no means would it guarantee the status quo would change in a good way. In fact, it could be in a much more tyrannous way, which is exactly what we were talking about before. If you took out the top layer of the uh, powers that shouldn't be overnight, all that would happen is a new branch, of, a new uh, crop of psychopaths would rise up to take their place. So, again, if you just uh, if the Fed collapsed in some economic situation overnight, don't you think that they've already prepared a lot of the groundwork for exactly that type of scenario so that they can step in, not as a national central bank, but as a regional or a global central bank? The Bank for International Settlements will save us. Yes, just accept our global taxation grid and all will be made better. Uh, clearly, there's there's problems to that scenario as well. And although Yes, a lot of people would have their eyes opened. They would also have their means of subsistence suddenly taken away from them. And in that state, uh, well, uh, society is only three meals away from a revolution, as they like to say. And people often, well, a lot of people who wouldn't, you wouldn't think so, would turn to the very powers that shouldn't be to provide the solution because, well, they need to eat. So... You know, it's not, it, I don't think that's a happy way of looking at it. And I don't want to see that kind of economic collapse, calamitous sudden collapse take place precisely because a lot of people will suffer and die as a result of such a collapse. And uh, I don't want to see that happen. I think there are better ways to do it. Uh, as to what I specifically suggest, well, I do have my own ideas on this subject. But before I go into them, as I will in the roundtable next week, I want to get solicit your opinions and not just. Not just uh, the for people out there who think that all we're going to hell in a handbasket, nothing can be done. That's great, wonderful. I don't really care. For people who have specific ideas of what they think can actually specific steps that people can actually take to affect some change, not necessarily with regards to pedophiles and upper branches of power or how we can arrest them or things like that. I mean, that yes, if you have ideas on that front as well, of course. But I think just generally speaking to this this question of, you know, what can be done about the, the powers that shouldn't be and the way that society is being run. Specific things that we can do. And again, I have my ideas and I think people can get a sense of that from my solution series on the podcast, but still, I'd like to hear your uh, your opinions on that. So please do leave your comments uh, in this, uh, in the show note or in, in the podcast uh, post on CorbettReport.com. On that, uh, on that very question, and uh, on the note of questions for you, as I turn the, uh, the the microphone back over to your side of the table for uh, to continue this conversation, I had an interesting question in from Stephen. Has democracy now received money from George Soros, Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation, etc.? I could only find a couple of websites which don't look too trustworthy, so is there any basis to this story? It would be interesting to get some documentation on this, if true. 
It certainly would. And this is something that I've looked into a few times over the years, and I've done this research. I've redone this research a few times. And uh, like yourself, I don't think I found any smoking gun, but I did find some interesting things that gestured towards that. Uh, but let me turn it over to you guys uh, in the open source investigation we're involved in. What can you guys come up with? Do you have any specific concrete uh, evidence on this, or at least some good cookie crumbs along that trail? And if so, please do leave them again in the comment section. I'm looking forward to your guys' response on that one. So I think that's going to do it for today. I think we've covered a great deal of territory here, as always. And of course, this is a podcast that's determined by you guys out there and the questions you send in. As always, I don't have time to get to everyone's questions, and I do apologize if your question did not make the cut, as it were, for this episode. But if it didn't, well, then... If you think it's important, send it in again, and it'll get re-entered into consideration for next month. As, once again, this is a monthly podcast series, and again, lots of different ways to get your questions in. Until that time, or until uh, my next video slash interview slash article, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me. I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.